You're listening to Market Champions, a podcast on navigating the financial markets. Here's your host, Shabas Prakash. This episode of Market Champions is brought to you by Simplify ETFs. For more information, visit simplify.us. No simplified funds will be discussed during this podcast. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of Market Champions. Today, I've got Bilal Hafiz. He's the founder of MacroHive, which is a platform that discusses, I guess, macroeconomic investment views from crypto to equities to macro, as he says in his Twitter bio. And so, you know, previously he was working at big banks, you know, running uh, the FX and rates research departments at places like Namira, Deutsche, JP Morgan. And, you know, Bilal, thank you so much for being on the podcast. It is awesome to have you here. My pleasure. Thanks for inviting me on. Yep. Well, I'm a huge fan of your podcast. And so, um, so I guess we should start off there. So, you know, one, could you tell the audience a little bit about your background and your career? So, you know, you started off in the big banks and then could you talk a bit about, you know, the transition from, you know, being a, being a big bank strategist to, you know, founding MacroHive? Yeah, of course. Yeah, yeah. I mean, if we, if we just kind of go back to the beginning almost, uh, I studied economics at university. Um, this was back in the late 1990s and I did economics. So obviously that naturally would lead to a career in finance. I, I did economics at Cambridge. And at the time, all the big banks would come to you know, recruit from, from Cambridge. Um, so, so that was kind of my initial exposure to finance. I always had a view that I wanted to do something, um, you know, something either in finance or management consulting, something, something in those areas. And finance ended up being the place I ended up having most luck with. So I applied for lots of different jobs as an intern and JP Morgan ended up giving me a summer internship. And so that was my sort of first exposure to banking. And then I, I liked it as soon as I got into it. And uh, so, so early on, you know, ended up working for JP Morgan in foreign exchange research on the research side and, and really, really enjoyed it. What helped was I had a really good first boss, um, a chap called Alfonso Pratt Guy, Argentinian guy, who later went on to become the central bank governor of Argentina and the finance minister of Argentina. So he is, he's quite, a, quite an impressive character, but he, he really influenced me a lot and, and gave me a lot of confidence in, in what I was doing. Um, and he kind of set the groundwork in terms of how I looked at markets and my you know, in my uh, sort of skills and, and so on. Um, so, so I was doing research early on um, at uh, JP Morgan, and then I left JP Morgan in 2002 to join Deutsche Bank, where I had a long career there, about 13, 14 years. And back in the, in the 2000s, before the global financial crisis, that was kind of the boom time for the financial sector. And Deutsche Bank was uh, the powerhouse in fixed income. It, it was, it grew dramatically, ended up becoming probably the biggest or one of the biggest fixed income shops in, in the world, you know, up there with JP and, and, and Goldman's. Um, so I joined them, ran foreign exchange research for a long stretch of time. Then after the global financial crisis, uh, things change a lot in finance, as, as you can probably, you know, tell from other people you've spoken to. So that was a, you know, a massive sort of structural break in the industry where before that there was not much regulation, there was a lot of innovation, you could do lots of stuff, anything you wanted, you could kind of do, which has its good and bad side. Um, the bad side obviously led to the financial crisis. Uh, but then soon after the global financial crisis, things change a lot, massive amounts of regulation, all sorts of constraints on what you could do 
limitations on who you could interact with and, and, and a general risk aversion, I would say, within the financial sector. So, so you know, the, from before the global financial crisis, it was like, if it's innovative, do it. After the financial crisis, it was more like, if you want to do something new, don't. It just just keep keep kind of keep everything sort of steady. Um, so during that phase, initially I moved to Asia for a few years because I thought Asia would be much more of an interesting area. It was growth area. China was really doing well, so I spent a few years out there, where I ran Asia research. Um, had a great time. Really liked it a lot. But in the end, for personal reasons, you know, family, friends, you know, uh, my wife and kids, we all wanted to kind of come back to London, which is our home. So we ended up coming back. And uh, then I took on a, a new role at Deutsche Bank where I ran cross-market research. And I also had an additional role where I was doing research with the CEO of, of Deutsche Bank, who's Andrew Jane at, at the time. So I did that for a few years. And then, um, you know, I thought it's time to, to move on to do something else. Um, and I was at that point, I was toying with the idea of, of launching my own company, because I, I, I had this entrepreneurial spirit within me. But I thought, let me let me kind of try something uh, in banks uh, before I do that. So I moved to Nomura, Japanese investment bank, which was, um, kind of not not in kind of the top tier you could say at least not in in, in Europe and the US but it uh, wasn't as regulated as, as some of the other banks uh, it was a pure investment bank uh, it didn't have any retail exposure so it, in some ways it was a bit more um, it was more of a risk taker as an institution than other other places right. so I you know I moved to Nomura ran research there for about three, four years. Uh, but in the end, I realized, look, you know, there's only so much you can do within a bank. In the end, there's just all this institutional inertia. And so it was time for me to, to strike out on my own. So that was kind of the background to, to you know, launching uh, sort of MacroHive. Um, and the in terms of the transition, it was a lot less hard than I thought, to be honest, you know, because... You know, one, it does help you if you already have your reputation in the market. So I already had a name in the market. And so that, you know, makes it easier for people to recognize you when you launch a business to get clients and so on. But also, you also have built up a huge network. And so you can lean on your network to help you out during the startup phase. Um, and if you look at statistics on, on business startups, uh, the, the most common age for a startup are the 40-somethings. You know, there's this kind of myth that, you know, startups are a young person's game, you know, where people who are 18 or 19 or 20 do a startup in their garage. You know, obviously there's high-profile examples of that, but in, in general, it's people in their 40s who do startups. Um, and those are the ones that tend to be more successful as well. Um, so, so, so that was kind of some of the background to, to making that transition. And so, you know, at the start, you, you said that, you know, you did um, economics at Cambridge. And so, you know, that was sort of the back end of when economics was, and you said it was in the 1990s. So that was sort of the back end of when you know, economics was still taught as a philosophical subject, as opposed to you know, the way it's taught today with a lot of mathematics and quantitative methodology. And so, one, do you think that the value of a university education in economics has gone down, you know, relative to say the 80s and the 90s, because they used to teach you how to think versus now where they just teach you, you know, various econometric models. And two, you know, do you think the value of say working um, at a bank has gone down post GFC, you know, post all the regulation, you know, they've shut down the prop desk, you know, the banks yeah. are a lot, as, as you mentioned, you know, a lot of these banks are, are more limited in what they can do. And so, 
So what do you, what's your take on that? Yeah, yeah. No, I mean, the really good questions, you know, in terms of the changing nature of economics, it certainly is true that economics has become a lot more quantitative as the years have gone on. Um, in fact, when I was doing my degree, um, you know, I, I kind of leaned more on the technical side, econometrics and so on, but there's still lots of options to do some of the more kind of qualitative areas. Um, I do think there is a loss in, in getting rid of that side of, of economics. Um, and I think, as you rightly point out, the one of the advantages of that philosophical way of thinking um, and also kind of a historical of the, the humanities way of thinking is that it allows you to, um, number one, deal with um, inaccurate or imprecise data. Um, so often, especially in markets, you don't have data for everything, you know. So while we talk about big data and everything, um, often the value that you have in markets is information that's not easily quantified. So, you know, so, uh, and, and this is especially the case when you get these sort of structural breaks in markets. Um, so to, to have that mindset of how do you think about um, your process of coming up with things. So it's almost like understanding first principles, you could say, you know, if, if you lean too much towards the technical side, it, you can almost become a slave to data. And I think often the way people are taught econometrics and data science, it's, it's almost like people don't really understand what they're doing, you know, they don't. Um, and and so, so I think there is a loss there. Um, I also think that since the global financial crisis, there's been lots of events that have happened where the recent past, i.e. the last 20, 30, 40 years, aren't the right reference points. You have to go even further back, you know, to either the interwar period or, um, you know, uh, world war periods or even earlier pandemics and so on. So that requires you to have kind of a historical mindset. And then when you go deeper into history, you have to have knowledge of that historical period. How can you compare it to today where, you know, what's the similarities and differences? So, so I do agree. I think there is a loss. Um, at the same time, I do think that the technical skills you pick up today in economics are very powerful. And a lot of the work you do in, uh, in markets, it really does help you to have those, that, those quantitative tools. Yeah, no, and I completely agree because, you know, as you mentioned, a lot of the edges end up being qualitative as opposed to quantitative. And so the quantitative ones tend to, while they exist, you know, they either tend to be arbed out by a lot of these, you know, larger quantitative edge funds, which tend to get to those ideas faster than you do. And so, yeah, yeah. So, you know, moving on, you know, I wanted to start off by talking about what's going on right now. You know, everyone's eyes are on the whole Russia-Ukraine situation. And so what's your take on it? And, you know, how are you thinking about that, especially in terms of market dynamics and implications for capital markets as a whole? Yeah, of course. Yeah. I mean, obviously, what we're seeing in uh, Ukraine, Russia is, is all quite dramatic and quite shocking. Um, and obviously, um, you know, we won't be talking about the political or moral dimensions of what this all we'll, we'll talk about this purely in economic and, and um, financial market terms. Uh, the, the few observations I would make are that number one, in the grand scheme of things, uh, Russia is not the same as China in the sense that Russia is not a huge economy in the world. So, you know, if Russia was to slow down dramatically, it wouldn't really have a huge impact on global growth. Um, so so um, uh, the, the real way Russia has an impact on the rest of the world is through energy. And so that's the first point I'd kind of make. And I think that when people look at the images they see on, on television, um, there it's easy, easy to paint a picture that this could dramatically upend markets. Um, but we have to understand the transmission mechanism through how it will impact global markets. So obviously, 
Russian markets themselves have have cratered, and that's what you'd expect with the sanctions that we've seen. Um, the the real question that everyone, all investors, are trying to understand now is how much of that will impact the S and P five hundred or bond yields or European stocks. You know, how how much does it go beyond beyond Russia? And for me, the critical channel is through energy. Um, obviously, right now we're seeing natural gas prices have shot up dramatically. So there's an obvious you know, channel there, which hits European growth and also European inflation. But the, the bigger one for me will be if oil prices really go up sharply. Now, they have picked up, you know, over the past few days, but they haven't picked up as much as one would have thought. You know, in some ways, oil prices were already on an uptrend since December. And what we've seen over the past week is is slightly faster than the trend, but it's not dramatically so. But for me, the, so the, the next risk for markets is a more dramatic you know, rise in, in oil prices. So that's, that, that's the risk I'm really focusing a lot on. And the reason for focusing on oil as a risk is that when you look at recessions, whether it's the US or, or the global economy, most recessions have tended to coincide with large shocks in oil prices. Um, even the global financial crisis, uh, in the one or two years before the global financial crisis, we saw a surge in oil prices, um, which while it wasn't the only factor, it definitely contributed to, um, to why uh, we, we did see a sharp slowdown thereafter. So for me, that's really the biggest risk for markets overall, that we see a dramatic increase in oil. Um, now, how could that happen? One way is at the moment, all the sanctions that the West has imposed on Russia have been on um, transactions uh, um, related to non-energy, uh, the non-energy sector. So essentially, there's all these financial sanctions, swift suspension, banks have been sanctioned, the central banks have been sanctioned. But if, if transactions are related to energy, they're allowed. But the next wave of sanctions could include the energy sector, in which case oil could really, really go higher. But th this is a delicate phase, though, because that's where there's pain to the rest of the world. And so the question then is, how can the West deal with, uh, you, with a, a new oil shock uh, if it was to emerge and if they were the ones to, tr to trigger it? So, so that, that's loosely the way I'm kind of thinking about it at the moment. And so, you know, when it comes to Europe, so, you know, you mentioned that you know, one implication has clearly been a spike in natural gas prices. And so the EU in general is highly dependent on energy supplies from Russia. And so, you know, considering that the ECB made sort of a pivot to hawkishness, so do you think, you know, that would become a policy area in that sense? Because, you know, high rates would not do anything to counter um, his imported inflation, um, most of which comes from, um, or comes from the, you know, so, so you know, Europe's energy supplies are highly dependent on Russia, and so you know if, if they go through the roof and you know they're they're being imported, you know higher rates simply don't solve that. So you know do you agree with that view? And just in general, you know what's your take on uh, you know that uh, the hiking cycle in Europe and you know what how it plays out for the euro? Yeah, sure, sure. Um, yeah, I mean the you know I you know referenced that period where oil prices rose dramatically before the global financial crisis in 2008, you know, 2006, seven, And at that time, the ECB wrote, was increased interest rates at the time to deal with uh, the higher inflation prices. And that ended up being a terrible de decision. And some years later, you know, even during the European crisis, they ended up hiking at what point, you know, when oil prices picked up. So, so I think the ECB has learned its lessons from the past. And this time around, if you look at its rhetoric over the past six, seven months, it really has been firmly in the transitory inflation camp. 
you know, partly because it's been scarred in the past by raising rates uh, off the back of higher, higher energy prices. So I think ECB is going to be very, very cautious in this environment. Already, the market has effectively priced out the, the hike, the hikes for this year. So there's been a big turnaround in ECB rate hike yeah. expectations. You know, before, before Russia, Ukraine, the market was pricing one or two hikes by the ECB this year. And now a lot, most of those hikes have, have been priced out, which I think is fair. Um, that said, I do still think ECB will taper. You know, it's it's winding down its balance sheet uh, expansion, so I think that will continue. Um, the the interesting dynamic, I think, in in for the, from an ECB perspective, is that um, how you know one interesting way they can deal with high energy prices is through a stronger euro. And the question is, how can they engineer a stronger euro? Like one is taper, which they're already doing. The other would be higher interest rates. So, so I think there could be an outside chance that they could say, okay, let's raise rates to get a stronger currency. That's not my base case, but that's probably the only way I could think of where they could raise rates in this current environment of higher, higher oil prices, uh, higher gas prices. Uh, but in general, I think the ECB is going to be very, very cautious from, from here onwards. And so, you know, speaking of hiking, you know, going to the U.S. So, you know, recently over the last, I guess, couple of days, we've saw, uh, we've seen the uh, number of implied rate hikes go down. So about a few days ago, I guess, almost right before the Russia conflict, you know, we were expect uh, the, the the Fed was expected to hike six times, uh, roughly by December 2022. But then now that's come down to less than five. And so, um, on my Bloomberg, it says 4.73 at the moment. And so, um. So you know what's your so what's your take on one inflation and you know are you are you on the transitory side or are you on the non-transitory side and so you know uh, how how are you thinking about hiking uh, hiking in the U.S. and you know sort of the, sort of the implication for rates and currency markets? Yeah, I mean on on the inflation side, I'm I'm kind of lean more in terms of on the transitory side, but but I think we have to be careful in terms of what we mean by transitory. You know, so what what I mean by transitory are. The, the, you know, the, the factors that have been causing high inflation, I think, will, you know, will, will be sort of temp were temporary factors. They're not necessarily structural factors. Mm -hmm. And the reason I say that is if you look at the inflation, um, you know, inflation over the last two, three years, there's been a number of factors that have caused higher inflation. Number one, there's been the pandemic, you know, which has introduced all sorts of uh, supply chain issues. So because of the pandemic, people haven't been able to work. And as a result, there's been an issue around supplying goods around the world uh, in, in, in different ways. Um, and there's been absences from work and so on. So there's a pandemic effect. Then there's the uh, oil effect that oil prices and energy prices have shot up over the last year or two, which has caused higher inflation as well. Then there's a fiscal response, especially on the U.S. side, where the U.S. actually increased people's incomes um, over uh, over a recessionary period, which is incredibly unusual, which led to a huge acceleration of uh, consumption growth in the U.S., where you saw in the space of one or two years, you saw the same amount of consumption growth of goods as you would see in 10 years. So there's this huge demand, positive demand shock that you've seen. And then finally, there's been the uh, central bank easings, which have also contributed to higher, higher inflation as well. So you've had all of these forces that have come together. Um, now, in terms of um, you know, which ones of these are permanent? You know, my sense is the pandemic, when the pandemic eases up, a lot of these supply chain, chain you know, supply shock, uh, supply chain issues will start to ease up. The, the one thing we've all struggled with is the pandemic has lasted longer than we all thought. You know, only, only, only recently, 
you know, only on this Friday has the US lifted the guidance on people wearing masks in indoors. You know, UK oh, yeah. is probably the furthest ahead in terms of the Western economies where there's no restrictions. But, you know, in, in Germany and other countries, there still are restrictions of different kinds. But I do think in the next few months, because of Omicron, there's a growing consensus around the world, even with the Chinese, that this is more like a flu now rather than. So the pandemics lasted probably a year longer than we all thought. And as a result, it's pushed inflation you know, higher for longer. Um, so, so for me, that that's going to pass, you know, at some point. Uh, the other one is the fiscal stimulus that the US did. We know that's passing already. So that's this year, the US will, uh, will have more of a negative fiscal impulse. So, so we'll, we'll have, have less of that. Uh, um, then there's the central bank side, you know, where central banks have been raising or expected to raise rates. So that's, that's less inflationary. Um, the one swing variable here is energy, you know, where, you know, it, it did seem like we've probably seen the worst of the rising energy prices, but now with Russia, Ukraine, that's the thing that could extend the energy cycle, uh, the, the inflation cycle. Um, and so that turns this into more of a conventional energy shock, you know, type of inflation, um, which makes it more difficult for central banks to deal with. Um, but what that means in the end is that um, we're much more likely to see uh, recessionary dynamics unfold. Um, so for me, the more interesting uh, proposition is, you know, while there is still this inflation story, um, I do think the bigger story is a recession. And that then affects how, what the Fed will end up doing, you know, because my sense is the Fed will still hike rates early on quite aggressively because they're very sort of sensitive to inflation. Um, but as the year goes on, they'll become more recessionary type uh, signals will start to become more, more apparent in the US, yeah. even in the US. And then that will prevent the Fed to be able to hike rates uh, aggressively. Um, so you end up in this environment where, you know, the market could end up overpricing the hikes right now. Um, but it's, it's partly to do with inflation coming off a bit, um, but it's also to do with this recessionary dynamic. And oil shocks are, are really a big part of that now. Uh, as, as well. Uh, yeah, I know the other thing that we're all seeing is the yield curve is flattening. And so, you know, I guess that's another sign of uh, the fact that economic growth is, at least the, uh, the bond market is expecting it. Yeah, to yeah. I mean, this is quite unusual how flat the curve is before the start of a hiking cycle. Typically, right. the curve doesn't flatten this much. And so markets are kind of telling you that not all is well in the economy. Um, and we've actually built a model which extracts the market probability from the yield curve for recession. So right now, our model that's based on the US yield curve is giving a 40% chance of a US recession, given how flat the curve is right now. At the start of this year, it was around 15%. So it's, it's, it really is a sort of shot up. Yeah, no, 100%. And so I guess the probabilities of, I guess just in general, one, uh, you know, the, the initial hiking cycle being, I guess, some sort of a policy mistake considering the other dynamics at play, because as you mentioned, you know, we're also seeing, you know, fiscal stimulus start to roll off. And, you know, with that, and, you know, fiscal stimulus has been a key variable in driving um, economic growth and aggregate demand since the start of the, since the start of the pandemic. And so seeing that roll off along with high rates, you know, that's definitely not you know, a recipe for higher growth, at least from yeah. what, at least from what we can see. Yeah. Um, you know, moving on. So, you know, uh, the, the other thing that people have been watching, especially with the whole Russia-Ukraine situation, has been ags and, I guess, uranium. And so, you know, those two have been, I guess, core theses. And, you know, a lot of these, a lot of investors have discussed that on your show as well. And so, you know, what, well, you know, so what's your take? Uh, so, you know, what are your takes on, I guess, commodities and 
Um, and, and, you know, you're super bullish on uh, crude. Um, so, you know, what's your take on, say, uranium, for example? And so, you know, that's something that a lot of people have been watching and, and have been bullish on. And so, you know, some things that you're seeing right now are Germany, one or Germany is going to postpone the nuclear phase out. And if anything, they're going to bring back nuclear simply to reduce energy dependence on Russia, for example. So, so you know, how are you thinking through yeah. ags, nuclear, et cetera? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think overall, we're in quite a constructive or bullish environment for commodities as a whole. Um, in terms of the specifics, let's start with ags, then we can talk about uranium. On the ag side, this Russia-Ukraine conflict is is, is, is really quite dramatic. You know, uh, Russia, Ukraine together, they're one of the largest wheat exporters in the world, also sort of sunflower and some other commodities as well. Um, and so we could see quite dramatic restriction um, in, in wheat supply to the rest of the world. Wheat prices have shot up and that's an important staple for the world. So we are likely to see another leg up in, in food prices. Um, now for me, there's, you know, two consequences of that. You know, first, uh, that's a problem more for emerging markets, where food is a larger component component of people's consumption baskets, more so than the Western uh, economies. So this is going to be a real problem for emerging market countries if, if food prices go up, you know, further from where, where they are right now. Um, and so, so that that's kind of one general observation. The other one is that typically when you see big increases in food prices, you tend to get social unrest. Um, now, we haven't seen that over the last year, year or two, even though we've had higher food prices. And I think a big reason for that has been the pandemic, where the pandemic has kept people home. But now, as the pandemic is easing, I think there's a much more higher probability of social unrest in different forms. Um, and so that could actually be another factor for general commodity prices increases, because if you suddenly get social unrest in countries who are commodity exporters in emerging markets, whether it's the Middle East or, or parts of Africa or, or Latin America or North Africa, um, then you could start to see you know, workers in key sectors not being available to work and that has an impact on, on, on um, other commodity markets. So, so that's a few observations on the ag side. So it's definitely one to watch. Um, the other one in terms of uranium, I do agree there is this, you know, you know inexorable move towards nuclear, you know, uh, at least if you just look at the numbers, there's essentially no real way of meeting carbon emission uh, standards or requirements without using nuclear of some form. I mean, renewables just don't have the same uh, energy density that you need to be able to meet, meet those guidelines. Um, now, uh, so in general, that's a bull bullish constructive environment for uranium. Um, the issue with uranium itself is that it's a very, it's relatively illiquid market. Um, and so the you know the prices can be quite erratic, but the, the the structural case is very bullish for uranium, and especially as the development of these uh, you know smaller reactors are uh, which are safer and easier to build, um, you know are you know does does help the case overall. The one issue with nuclear is there is a quite large upfront cost, so there is uh, you know an infrastructure issue around doing that all. But I do think that what we're seeing in Germany is potentially quite pivotal. Um, so Olaf Scholz, the Chancellor of Germany gave what's now called the turning point speech last weekend, where essentially they did a pivot or U-turn on key policies. You know, one was on energy, where they basically brought forward their move towards renewables. 
Um, they talked about you know importing more liquid natural gas, LNG, becoming less reliant on Russia. They kind of opened the door to maybe reconsidering nuclear as well. And what's key there is what the Green Party thinks, which which they they could be open. Uh, they pivoted on defense. You know that Germany now will ratchet up its military spending, um, and they also were a bit more open to more fiscal spending as well. So there's been a huge shift in in Germany around this all. Um, now the key thing is you know now that you know, everybody's essentially seemingly uh, agrees that Russia is a country that they, uh, you know, don't necessarily want to deal with going forward. The question is whether the Green Party in particular would be willing to recognize that they need to go back into nuclear in order to move off uh, nat gas reliance from, from Russia. So this is an area we need to watch, but I think there is a good chance that we could move in that direction. Yeah, got it, got it. And so, um... Yeah, and so, you know, moving on, you know, from like a general standpoint, uh, you worked as an FX great strategist, uh, you know, at the big banks. And so, you know, what are your favorite resources for building, say, you know, FX and rates trading strategies, you know, say books, papers, et cetera. So, you know, how do you go about, you know, building both macro outlooks as, as well as trading strategies in these markets? Yeah, no, that's a good question. I mean, my, my kind of general approach to all of this is to, um, you know, take a fairly holistic approach. So my, my general approach is to understand the theory. You know, I do think theory is important in, in finance. And, you know, although often the theories are wrong, it's important to have something to fight against or something to use, you know. So, so I would say that, you know, just getting some sort of good textbooks on um, FX rates, um, equities, and so on is, is, is quite helpful. Um, now, I was... I'm kind of from an older vintage, so there's a different series of books that I use, but I'm sure, you know, today there are some sort of good books on that. So in FX, it would be things like, you know, understanding concepts like uncovered interest rate parity, which is related to carry trades, understanding what purchasing power parity or PPP is, uh, which is related to currency valuations, um, and, and then understanding the option theory as well. So, so, so those are some of the areas that you need to understand. And then also some of the fundamentals like current account dynamics, balance of payments dynamics, and, and so on. So on currencies, you have to kind of know that. Then on the rate side, it's important to know um, just, you know, what, what drives the term structure, uh, you know, of, of a yield curve, you know, what are the different types of instruments, what are cash bonds, what are swaps, um, you know, does term, term print, how do you forecast term premium, what is term premium? Um, so you just kind of need to know some of the theories. I think that's quite, quite important. Um, and the same for equities as well. But in the end, I think a lot of uh, the experience you get is, uh, one is to uh, kind of, implement your views, either through trading or through writing. So, you know, to write down what your views are on a given market, and then you can mark to market yourself uh, in some form. Um, and, and the other thing is just to somehow get hold of other researchers' views. And then through that, you'll be able to learn, you know, how they come about, you know, with, with sort of ideas. Um, then on, the, on terms of the trading strategies, you know, I think there's some well-known sort of trading strategies in, in all of these markets. But the key ones that you have to understand is, um, uh, first, just, you know, at a basic level, understand what trend following strategies are, you know, which in essence is just follow the price momentum. If prices are going up, you buy. And you can make it more complicated by having more complicated mathematical functions. But ultimately, that's all you're doing. You know, if price is going up, you buy. If price is going down, you sell. Um, uh, and then there's a lot of thought about, okay, how do you define a price increase? Is it relative to yesterday, the day before? Should you smooth it? There's all sorts of 
ways to refine it. But ultimately, that's a key uh, strategy that almost every investor uses, whether they admit it or not. And then the other one is the carry strategy, where you know everybody likes to earn carry in some form. So you know you want to buy the high interest rate markets, sell the low interest rate market. You try to earn the roll yield on the curve, high dividend stocks versus low dividend stocks. Um, and then the third, uh, the third important one is valuation, value-based strategies. Understand, okay, in, in a given market, uh, how do you determine whether a market is under or overvalued? Um, and then you can build a strategy around that. So almost all quant strategies are based on those three. Um, quants tend to lean more towards momentum and carry, um, whereas macro guys, discretionary guys, uh, lean a bit more on, on value as well, um, but ultimately everything kind of goes back to those through those three. Um, then you can kind of have more advanced models where you you have ad hoc models which are based on relationships which appear to work right now, and you just hope they're going to carry on working in the next period. You can use machine learning, which has the advantage of being able to make use of larger data sets, and it's also able to look at. Uh, non-linear relationships in a much more effective way rather than traditional econometrics or techniques. So then you can kind of push push into that frontier as well. Um, so I think all of these things are really important to learn. And, uh, you know, th there's, a, there's a huge amount to learn. And uh, in the end, uh, you, you kind of need to do a combination of learning the theory and then some kind of practice as well. Yep. And, you know, in the end, when it comes to effects and rates, so do you have any, I guess, good book or uh, good say book recommendations, for example. So, you know, the one thing that you have on the equity side is, you know, you have like, just a ton of books when it comes to equities. I mean, you can find books on say Chinese equities, you can find, and you know, you've got the regular, I guess, Peter Lynch, you know, Ben Graham, Warren Buffett, et cetera, that you can read in order to understand the equity market a lot better. So, you know, similarly on the macro side, we don't exactly have, you know, those kind of guidebooks. So it ends up being, you know, more holistic approach. And so do you have any good book recommendations when it comes to, you know, building FX and rate strategies or any good papers, et cetera, that you would recommend? Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, I think in terms of uh, textbooks, if we start on the FX side, you know, there's a book called The Economics of Exchange Rates by Lucio Sano, Sano and Taylor. That's a very good book. It came out a while ago, about 2002, 2003. Um, but I think a lot of what's written in there still holds today. So I think that's a very good book. The other one is Exchange Rate Forecasting by Michael Rosenberg. Um, he, I used to actually work with him at Deutsche Bank many years wow. ago, but what, what he's done very well in that book is that he describes the theory of FX and then he um, you know, relates it to what actually happens in FX markets as well. So I think those two books are, are very good for kind of the... Um, kind of the theory and how it applies to, to, to the real world. Um, uh, so I'd, I'd recommend those two books. Um, then uh, on, the, on the rate side, there's a few sort of books that are very good. One is the Fabosi's book on fixed income securities is, is very good. There's also another rates book by, let me just see if I have it here. Um, yeah, fixed income securities by uh, Tuchman and Serrat is also, is also very good as well. Um, and uh, the, the book on trading strategies that I like a lot is Expected Returns by Ilmanen. Um, so he's, uh, he's worked uh, on the kind of hedge fund side and also he has kind of a quantitative background. So I think that, that's very good for, for, uh, you know, for learning oh, yeah. about sort of trading strategies. Um, then uh, Systematic uh, Trading by Robert Carver is very good as well. And then I would also say some of the option books um, 
like Nassim Taleb's uh, Dynamic Hedging. Uh, that's a bit so older now, but that's a good book. Adam McBall, who runs uh, Goldman's FX Options, he's come out with a couple of books on the FX Options, which are very, very good. So that's, that's worth reading on, on the options side. Then Hull's book on options is also, also very good as well. Um, on, on the rate side, you know, aside from textbooks, I think uh, the Fed and central banks produce a lot of good stuff on, on rates. Um, so if you just go to the Fed website and the working papers, it will often have something around term premium or inflation expectations. And you can learn a lot from some of those papers. And, and some of them are quite accessible as well. So I would say that's another good source. And the ECB does something similar as well in the Bank of England. So, so the central banks, uh, academic, uh, their, their kind of their papers are, are quite good on the rate side and rates inflation. Um, FX is a funny one. FX kind of falls between the cracks. There's a, there's a huge right. amount of literature on rates and equities, but FX always falls between the cracks, you know, because it's it's kind of an in-between asset class, which for me makes it much more interesting as well. Yeah, yeah. Okay, and then moving on, I wanted to talk a bit about, you know, your experience running MacroHive. So, you know, you've, you, you know, you've published many, many, many podcast episodes and, you know, your podcast is absolutely wonderful. So, you know, who have been, I guess your favorite people to interview and, you know, what have been the best lessons that you've learned so far? Yeah, sure, sure. Yeah. So, I mean, just, you know, if I just give some background, first of all, on MacroHive itself. So, um, you know, we set up MacroHive, you know, a number of years ago in, in um, 2019. So I set it up with, um, with my partner, Andrew Simon, who used to run uh, uh, sales at JP Morgan FX sales. So he kind of had more of the business side. He also was an option trade by background as well. So we kind of set MacroHive up and the idea was to provide, you know, insights, research and so on to a broader audience, which is through the podcast. And we have a website where there's a subscription where retail or just the average person can get access to market views. So we have that product and then we have a more high-end product for hedge funds and asset managers, you know, which is a much higher price product. Um, and they, they, they get access to the full array of everything that we do. So that, that's kind of the product offering that we have. Um, and, but philosophically, you know, what we've done is we have our in-house research team of seven, eight, nine people. But then also what we've done is we've built a large network of other researchers who we collaborate with and interact with. And we kind of harness the intelligence of our network in order to deliver ideas. Um, so that, that's kind of something about MacroHive itself. And uh, as you mentioned, a big part of this has been our podcast, you know, which is free and available, you know, comes out once a week. Um, and we've been doing this pretty much, I think uh, for almost uh, two years now. Um, we recently passed our 100th episode, which was great. Um, and, you know, we've interviewed, I've interviewed all sorts of people as, as, as you know. Now in terms of which people, um, I kind of enjoyed the most. I mean, first of all, I have to say as a host, they've, they've all been fantastic. Um, uh, you know, we, we've had some really good people like we had Raghu Rajan was very good. You know, so he used to be the governor of the RBI and the former World Bank yeah, Economist. Yeah. He's, he was really, really quite good. Uh, early on during the COVID period, he laid out a really good framework of how to think about how the, uh, the COVID pandemic would unfold. Mervyn King was also very good, you know, former Bank of England governor in terms of thinking about inflation. And he was surprisingly candid about his views on the Fed. You know, he's quite critical of central banks. Um, 
Charles Goodhart, uh, who's like a, you know, a real heavyweight in central banking circles. He was really, really quite frank and open as well. Um, now, outside of that, more on the investor side, I'm just going through the sort of the list of people that, that we've had. Um, uh, I, I would say um, I always enjoy speaking to Jim Leitner. Uh, so Jim Leitner, we've had on twice. He's actually was our first client as well on the institutional side, you know, for us. And I speak to him every week. Um, he's somebody who's quite unusual in the sense that, uh, you know, he, he kind of, uh, you know, he's kind of in the market day in, day out, but he can think very strategically, um, which is unusual. Um, and he's willing to hold on to trades for longer than other people through the use of options. So I think he, he, he's, he's, he's amazing. Yeah. Yeah, he, he's, he's great. Um, then, uh, then also, um, let me see. Uh, then, then, I mean, we also had uh, Mark Yusko recently. He was very good. Um, so he, uh, he's the CIO of Morgan Creek. Um, and, and, you know, again, again, he was quite thematic, which I liked. Um, he, you know, he had a view on asset allocation, on crypto, um, and so I thought he, he was quite compelling in many of the things he was talking about. Charlie Ellis was another one that was very good. You know, he's a bit of a legend in, in the investment circles. Um, he was very good. Ari Paul, um, he is the CIO and founder of Block Tower Capital, which is a crypto fund. Um, he was in, in the crypto space. We, we produce a lot of research on crypto now. And what I find on the crypto space is that you have kind of these two extremes where you have these crypto enthusiasts who basically say that crypto will solve all the problems of the world and they can never see a fault in crypto and they basically tell you to put all your money into crypto and you you're going to become a billionaire which i think is 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 not quite right and then the other side you have the real cynics who think it's it's all one big scam now ari's uh you know someone on you know who sort of straddles both sides really well obviously he's has a crypto fund so obviously he believes in it but at the same time he has the right level of skepticism that i think is very very important when it comes to uh comes to crypto and he he really kind of has a good sense of what the true value uh is um the the other i mean i could go on and on but i mean just two other names i've mentioned is one is alex gravich um he's he's great on rates you know um uh you know, he's good. Uh, he has a really good uh, intuitive and theoretical understanding of rates, um, which is very good. Boris Vladimirov, I think I always really enjoy speaking to as well. He's currently at Goldman's. Um, he has kind of an EM type background, but again, framework driven and, and very, very good. Um, yeah, I, I could kind of go on. David Dredge was great. Todd Edgar was great. Um, I would say pretty much, you know, so many of the people we've had were, were really, really quite, quite good. So, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, that's 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 awesome. And and you know, what, what are sort of the best lessons that you've learned in terms of um, invest investing in markets when it comes to um, you know when, when it comes to podcasting? So the, I guess the reason uh, you know there's a reason we do podcasts is so that, you know we can talk to smarter people and you know get their lessons and their ideas and yeah. their perspectives. So you know, what is what would have been you know the best lessons or the best aha moments that you've had when you've when you've spoken with all these people? Yeah, I mean, I would say one thing that becomes very clear when you speak to sort of people is that um, you know very very smart people can have very different views on the on on the same su subject. So you can get very smart people that will talk about how inflation is out of control; it will go very high. Then you'll have very smart people arguing the opposite, 
And the same on crypto, the same on equities will go up, equities will go down. And so what that tells you is that being smart in itself won't necessarily lead you to one answer, you know, that in the end, when it comes to investing, nobody really knows the future, you know, the, you know, who, who knows what's going to happen in the future. All we can do is we can have our best guess of what, you know, the future will be. And we need some mechanism to be able to revise our views when new information comes about um, and know when to change that view. So, so one of the biggest lessons I have when I speak to people is just humility to, you know, have this sense that no matter how much, how smart I think I'm going to get, how experienced I'm going to get, um, I won't really know the answer. You know, if yeah. anything, sometimes knowing too much, you know, will give you, you know, once you know, the more and more you know, the less certain you become. That, that's one thing that sort of almost kind of happens uh, when, when I speak to sort of uh, speak to sort of people. The other one, the other thing that does come up a lot when I speak to people is a lot of people, one of the lessons I, I guess is um, sort of patience is very important. You know, a lot of the people I speak to one way or the other are talking about patience, you know, and I think in a world where we, in, we're inundated with information, it's very easy to trade very quickly. Um, one can overtrade, and all the academic literature is very clear. Overtrading leads to poor returns, yeah. um, and I think one needs to be careful about so confusing uh, noise for signal. You know, just because some headline comes up and everybody else is doing something doesn't mean that anything's changed. So, so one is humility, the other is patience, and then a third I would say is kind of curiosity. Um, that many of the people I've spoken to have a, have a deep curiosity about why things work they, the way they do. They have a willingness to explore new areas, markets, um, like some of the sort of top hedge funds I speak to, some of the founders of the biggest hedge funds in the world. I'm, I'm often surprised how willing they are to explore new asset classes, whether it's crypto or uranium and all these other sorts of markets. They have that willingness to go out of their comfort zones to learn about a new asset class. Um, so. Um, so humility, patience, and curiosity, I think, would be the three sort of lessons I've learned, you know, from speaking to all of these great guests. Yep, that's awesome. And so, you know, to wrap up the podcast, you know, I guess, you know, if you could leave investors with three lessons, you know, what would they be? You know, I guess about markets, trading, or even, you know, just general lessons that you've learned from your podcast. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I would say that um, the first important thing about investing is um, don't get wiped out, you know, so, so sometimes people focus so much on the positive side, the return side, I, I can make, you know, a thousand percent or this and that and the other, but the first rule of investing is don't lose all your money, don't get wiped out. Um, and while that may sound like obvious and, and simple, there's something behind that, which means that in order to not get wiped out, you have to make sure that your investments are such that a given market move isn't going to wipe out your wealth. So that tells you, okay, you have to understand the volatility of the asset class you're, you're exposing yourself to. And here I'm thinking about crypto, where crypto is an 80% volatility market compared to equities, which is 20%. So equities already is quite volatile, but in, in Bitcoin or, or Ethereum or whichever market, you can get four or 5% swings every day. Um, and if you don't size your position correctly, it could really put a massive dent in your in your personal wealth. So one of the most important things is make sure you don't get wiped out and you stay in the game. 
Um, because in the end, the way you make money in markets, which is the second thing, is through compounding returns over time. That's the way. So making small returns every single day for a long period of time, which compound over over time. So what you know, so in order to do that, you have to still be in the game. You know, if you're if you're stopped out and you're out, you can't compound. So the second thing is always make sure that you're invested and you're compounding your, your returns over time. And then have a sense of what the long-term returns are that you're trying to capture. So what we know is equities tends to give you positive returns over time. You know, bonds also deliver some kind of return over time. And you generally want to lean to have those sorts of exposures. Um, right. so, so those are kind of the two kind of core principles. And then the third one, I think, which is very relevant for a year like now, is that sometimes it's fine to have some cash as well that people often think cash doesn't have any value because you earn no yield from it but i think cash especially in a highly uncertain year if you do have some additional money to invest sometimes putting in cash is the best option especially in an environment like we're in today where it's unclear you know how the world will unfold there's potential lots of um kind of exogenous shocks that could affect your portfolio but if you have cash you have to think of it as its optionality value, that if you have a large chunk of cash available, um, when market prices get distressed, when an asset gets distressed in price, you can come in and buy something at a distressed sort of value. Um, so I would say don't underappreciate or don't undervalue cash. Uh, cash by itself is an asset position. And I think, you know, people- Exactly, yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. And, you know, Alex Kurovich, you know, talking about, you know, I guess, market bubble, like asset bubbles versus cash bubbles and say, so, you know, and, you know, describing March as a cash bubble and saying, so, I think that's also an interesting framework to think. Um, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Bilal, thank you so much for being on the podcast. It's been awesome, you know, getting your thoughts on various markets, you know, talking through, you know, what you've learned, you know, uh, in your journey of building macro high. So, you know, thank you so much for being on the podcast. And uh, if anyone's listening, you know, uh, you know, if anyone's still listening, <laughs> um, <laughs> Uh, make sure to check out Macro Hive. Um, it's a phenomenal podcast. It has awesome guests, awesome interviewers as well. So, you know, thank you so much for being on below. No, my pleasure. Great to be, great to be on. Thank you for listening to Market Champions. To never miss an episode, make sure to subscribe and we'll see you next time.